Welcome to Rise from the Ashes. Our podcast looks at various issues for families. We'll be talking with attorneys about personal and legal concerns having to do with divorce, custody, and parenting time. There are also a few topics about letting go, moving on, and new beginnings. Please keep in mind this podcast is only to inform and help to understand legal and personal issues as they relate to family law. It should not be considered as a replacement for a qualified family law attorney. When in doubt, please contact a professional. Rise from the ashes, focusing on matters of the family, because family matters. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Rise from the Ashes. I'm David Braddock. I'll be your host for this podcast, and we're talking today with Susan Mundahl, the lead attorney here at Mundahl Law. How are you, Susan? I'm great, David. You know what, Susan? Let's talk about spousal support. That sounds great. What are we talking about? Is this alimony? You know, that's a really good question. Everyone calls it alimony, but in Minnesota, the technical term is spousal maintenance or spousal support. And it all means the same thing. It's how you support a spouse in a long-term marriage. And it can be either gender. It can be either the man supporting the woman or the woman supporting the man, and depending on the type of marriage. You know, the thing is, is historically, the statute was designed to help provide support for a spouse who had sacrificed during the marriage. And the sacrifice was usually the homemaker who gave up a career in order to raise children and take care of the home. So typically it was women. Unfortunately, though, we've sort of lost that idea now in the modern age about that sacrifice. I always thought that it should be that it's a recognition that someone gave up their ability to earn enough to support themselves in the future. And so that was really the idea for spousal support. What does the statute say about who should be receiving spousal support? The statute is Minnesota Statute 518.552, if anyone wants to look it up. What it essentially says is that the court considers five guidelines in determining whether someone should receive spousal support. And you're correct, it does not talk about the sex of the spouse. So it could be a husband or a wife. Essentially what it says is you look at the relative incomes of the parties, you look at the monthly expenses that they have, you take into consideration what was the standard of living during the marriage, and what is the relative health of the parties, and what are the needs of the spouse who needs the support going forward. How exactly is this spousal support based on those parameters? How is it calculated? We look at some guidelines ourselves as attorneys, and we consider long-term marriages to be in excess of 10 years. And there is some case law on that. There was more recent case law of a marriage that was only six years old, where the wife received permanent spousal support. But in that case, she was also permanently incapacitated due to illness. But generally, we look at a long-term marriage of over 10 years. Then we look at what are the relative incomes of the parties. Now, I want to delve on that income piece because I've noticed that a lot of spouses are unrealistic in their expectations of spousal support. Can you give us an example of a typical spousal support situation? Yes. I think you're looking at a long-term marriage, say, around 20 years. Those seem to be the ones where they have enough money to really warrant spousal maintenance. And so you have an obligor who is earning around $100,000 or more, a lot more. Usually about the minimum threshold I look at is, are they making around 100000 And that would be the one that would 
be having the spousal support requested of them. Correct. Okay. Obligor. Yes, obligor. And so the obligee then is the spouse who needs the spousal support. Generally, their income, they either have nothing, they're homemakers, and they've been homemakers for a number of years, or they have minimal income coming in. Say they've been working as a paraprofessional in a school district. In that case, we look at what is the obligor's income. And historically, it has been husbands who are making more money. And so just for the sake of making it a little easier, instead of using phrases like obligor and obligee, let's just talk about husband and wife. But with the recognition that nowadays it could very easily be wife as the obligor and husband as the obligee. The important thing is that Now, with the new IRS law that says that we no longer allow obligors or husbands, it used to be that they got a credit. Literally, it reduced their income by the amount they paid in spousal support. And then the obligee wife was usually expected to include it as income. Well, in 2018, the decision was made to now make it that it is not an income function. So obligors don't get to take it off of their income taxes and obligees don't claim it as income. Then once you do that, you're now looking at husband's net income after taxes because he is going to be having the tax consequence. This makes it difficult because the wives that I have been working with and that we've been seeing more and more of have this unrealistic expectation about what they can expect in spousal support. And the bottom line is, as a rule of thumb, they are never going to get more than half of what the spouse makes, what their net income is. And so they have to adjust what it is that they want down. And As you know, it is a lot easier for two people to live on one income together than it is to have two separate households. Right, because the rent doubles, the utilities double, both cars are being used, etc. Right. So even if your spouse is earning $10,000 a year, typically that's going to result in $8,000 then available as income for the parties to live on, which means the most you could expect is $4,000. And it is unrealistic to expect any more than that or even to expect necessarily that half because the courts then look at what is the relative expenses of the party. And they will look into what are reasonable expenses, and that is also where they look into the standard of living. Well, it sounds like there's some people that may come to you that have very unrealistic expectations about what they might expect in spousal support. What do you do about that? That's a good question, David. It's important when you're doing spousal maintenance cases that you make use of experts in the field. And one of the experts in the field in this area of law is the Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, what we call a CDFA. They're financial advisors. They have been specifically trained in this area, and they have software to help calculate what is reasonable spousal support. And their software will include what are the tax consequences. So they don't take it off the person's actual paycheck, but instead they look at what is going to be the actual tax consequence for each person. So I bring in a CDFA early in the case so that they can talk to my client about what are their incomes. If it is a client who is going to be an obligee, what potential income could be assigned to them? 
Then we come up with some spousal support figures, minimums and maximums. Sometimes if I'm representing a husband or an obligor, we talk about the most exposure they have to pay spousal support. But my goal is always to set a reasonable amount Clearly, that the more incomes the parties have available to them, the more that it's a little easier in trying to meet any spousal support obligation. It's a lot harder when both parties are essentially going to have to sacrifice in order to pay their bills. You just mentioned potential incomes. How does this relate to spousal support? The point of potential incomes is if you have a homemaker, and I have had clients who have spent 20, 25 years as homemakers, they don't have an established income at the present time. They are either going to have the court assign a potential income to them, or we need to figure out what that potential income could be. Now, in one case, I had a woman who had just completed high school. We used a vocational evaluator, and that vocational evaluator came back and said the most she could be expected to earn at this time at her age, which was over 40 years old, was minimum wage. And yet the case, it's called Passolt v. Passolt, in which case the husband was a local newscaster making about 500000 a year, and his wife of 20-some years had a master's degree in education but had only ever worked as a part-time yoga instructor. And in that case, she was given an awful lot of spousal support, and it was taken up to the Court of Appeals. And Mr. Passolt said, wait a minute, shouldn't she be required to use her education in getting herself self-supporting? And the Court of Appeals agreed. So from that, we know that spouses are expected to live up to that. There was a case where wife had a master's degree in a form of education, and she had been working part-time in that area. We thought it was correct that the court could assign an income based on full-time wages. Those are the kind of cases, those are the determinations that are expected of the court, and we get all kinds of answers on what the court is going to do. Can you give us an example of the kind of answer that might be appropriate for this Well, let me just put it this way. What we have discovered is that in terms of spousal support, and there was an exercise done at divorce camp a few years ago, all of us participants who were lawyers and judges and mediators and financial planners and people working in the area of divorce, we were given a scenario and the scenario was identical. Half of us were divided in each room. And in one room, it was a male who was asking for spousal support. And in the other room was a female asking for spousal support. And were the roles the same, although the gender was different? Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And it was interesting. But what we found out is that based on that sampling, women are more likely to get spousal support and they're likely to get it for a longer period of time and a little more money. And that's all we can say. Isn't that interesting? Well, I think it goes back to that precursor I talked about, that idea of sacrifice. And if you have a male who you don't see that sacrifice, I think the courts are still a little old-fashioned in thinking that they don't deserve spousal support. They should basically lift themselves up by their bootstraps and get a job. It sounds mostly like what you're suggesting is that people should be reasonable when they're considering what they're either going to be responsible for in spousal support or what they're asking for. Absolutely. It is even a little more than that. It is for obligees, they need to recognize this is not a profit-sharing plan. 
that simply because your spouse makes considerably more than you, that doesn't mean you get all of it or even half of it. The court is going to be looking at what are your needs based on the standard of living during the marriage, but there is going to be an expectation in most cases that you work. This is an area in particular that I'm hearing a lot of misinformation coming to me, where people, obligees, wives usually, are being told by well-meaning people that they should not go out and look for a job. And I disagree with that completely because, number one, in most cases, there's not enough money that you're not going to get all of your needs met. And number two, there is going to be an expectation from the court that you work to your best of your ability. Now, certainly, if you're 70 years old, there's no one going to expect you to work. But if you're 40 years old or 50 years old, you are going to be expected to get a job. So wouldn't you rather get a job that is going to be meaningful to you and one that meets what your abilities are and succeed from there as opposed to having someone put a limit on you? Can you give us a good example Yes. There was a case where there was this obligee, and that person was working as a paraprofessional, but had fully the credentials to be a teacher. When it went before the court, the court found that that person had the ability to make $50,000 a year. Well, that person wasn't making 50000 a year, and that's what obligees have to understand, is that the court can assign an income to you, and if you don't provide the court with any indication of what you actually can be making, you leave it up to the court to decide what it could be. And in this case, you're talking about a difference of $20,000 a year, that the court considered that that person was able to make that much, so the spousal support obligation was going to be $20,000 less than possibly what it could have been. It sounds like cases like this can get pretty complicated. I agree, David. And that is my main point, is that this area of law is very complicated, and you need some guidance from professionals in the area. You need an attorney who understands this area of the law, who has experience in understanding how these cases may go, and you need to listen to their advice. I think it's also useful to talk to a CDFA, a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, and even in some cases to utilize a vocational evaluator in determining what your potential income is. So then you're dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's before you get in front of a judge. That's right. And in fact, our hope is always that if we make a reasonable offer, the obligor will see the value in reaching a settlement versus going to trial. Any parting thoughts or advice? Well, if you have a question, I'm here. And this is an area of my expertise. And I would love to speak to you about your spousal maintenance case. You are listening to Rise from the Ashes, the podcast channel that takes a careful look at all things having to do with legal procedure within the family law process. Rise from the Ashes is sponsored by Mundal Law, who specializes in assisting families and individuals through the legal process with respect, dignity, and caring. Mundal Law is dedicated to helping people to solve their legal problems. You can visit the Mundall Law website at mundalllaw.com or call to schedule a consultation with one of their qualified family law attorneys. Rise from the ashes, focusing on matters of the family, because family matters.